Hey, Deserving Listeners, we've talked about uh, cults and other related topics a few times, and there's been a lot of interest in it. A lot of listeners have wanted more uh, discussion about that. So I have asked Alexandra, uh, what's your last name, Alexandra? Dane. Dane. To Dane. Stain. 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 Okay, right. It uh, looks like Stein to me, but it's Stain, you're saying. And she is an expert on cults, and so I thought we would find out why people join cults, because it is kind of a mystery as to, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, I would never join a cult, that, that's not me, I'd, you know, I would be able to sniff it out, I, you know, I'd, I'd tell them to, to go to hell, and uh, I think that um, that's not necessarily uh, true, I think people are overly confident about their ability to um, withstand a sort of process. So I, I thought we might ask Alexandra about that process. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Alexandra, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Alexandra Stein. I have a PhD basically in social psychology, studying the mechanisms at work in cults and totalitarian systems. I um, am an honorary research fellow at uh, Birkbeck University of London currently, and I do a variety of things. And I have um, two books on this topic, my memoir, Inside Out, and a study, again, of these kinds of mechanisms called Terror, Love, and Brainwashing. And you were referred to me by John Atak, who has been on the podcast a few times, from the Open Minds Foundation. I'm on one of, I'm on the advisory board, I think, of that organization. So. Yeah, I believe I am also on the advisory board. So why do people join cults? Well, the first thing I say is they don't join cults. They join some kind of organization or relationship or group that they think is going to be beneficial or serve some purpose um, so, you know, someone may go to do yoga for fitness or they may join a church or they may, as I did, join a political organization hoping to contribute to social justice. So, you know, no one who's in a cult or who joins such a group knows or thinks it's a cult. They they join in a some for believing it to be some kind of bona fide organization. And it's generally only when people get out, and even then, not then, for many people, do people look back and say, wow, I think that was a cult. Um, Or maybe on their way out, they may think that. So I think that's important for people to understand because I, I think there's a kind of idea that, you know, these people who get into cults are, just stupid and you know want someone to kind of control them or or whatever and they kind of know that it's this manipulative and oppressive organization but really that's not true people see the kind of front stage the the um the kind of fake um uh outside view of this group that says whatever it says you know come to us for some coaching you know, whatever. And it's often a somewhat gradual process where people get more and more drawn in 
until they're kind of locked in and it becomes very difficult to get out. And then some of the more uh, unpleasant aspects are going to show themselves in this more gradual way. Can you describe what, or an example or a typical presentation of that, that first, you know, couple steps? Well, let's take an example of someone I talked to recently who went to something called Key Wellness. And it's, you know, in central London, um, where I am. Um, and it presents itself as a holistic wellness program where you can go and get acupressure, you know, which seems very fine, you know, no problem. But once you start going, um, they may then say, well, you have to come more often. You need more treatments. Oh, and by the way, if you come on the weekend, you know, we have special programs and we have food. Oh, and by the way, this, that, and the other, right? And um, once you start getting drawn in, eventually they start, well, not, you know, once, once you're quite hooked in already, they're going to start saying, to really heal you, we need to heal your ancestors because you're kind of carrying this stuff from, from past family members. Well, to me that sounds crazy, but on the other hand, this is what a psychotherapist might say as well. Right. Right. You know, it's not a it's not a completely foreign idea, especially to certain cultural groups and people. Right. So you've got to start going through this process of healing your ancestors, which becomes extremely expensive, by the way. And during this process and in any cult, as you get more committed and you put in more resources, whether that's time or money or free labor or a relationship that they may set you up with, which is very common. That So you get these kind of things that are pulling you in and you also start getting a kind of series of either low or high level threat messages. So, you know, if you don't do the ancestor healing, you will never get better. And in fact, you might get some terrible diseases. Um, if you leave now, you won't achieve your potential and in fact you'll backslide you know i think something like scientology would probably talk in those kind of terms and then you may get more intense threats like with the jehovah's witnesses where they may be apocalyptic threats of armageddon is going to come and only some of us are going to be saved and you know do you really want to be one of these people who are struck down by satan would you consider jehovah witness to be a cult absolutely i would Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, this weekend in London, there's going to be a bit, I hope, a big protest. Um, there's a large Jehovah's Witnesses convention here, and more and more people are leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses and organizing themselves. Now, I didn't go around saying, I'm an expert and I state that the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. No, what happened is people came and found me because I do some cult recovery counseling. I have a small practice doing that. And they were finding me on the internet in in the UK and coming to talk to me and say, hey, I've left the Jehovah's Witnesses and I think it's a cult. And, you know, I really didn't know about it other than what everyone knows, you know, the sad-looking people giving out the watchtower. But as I heard the stories and became educated, it became clear to me that it was operating in the same way as other cults that I've studied. um, How so? How so? Well, I mean, here's, I'll kind of give my my five-point definition of what a cult is. 
it was started by a charismatic and authoritarian leader. I, th I think you've been talking about narcissism quite a bit recently. I just was looking at your website. So these are, you know, super narcissistic, psychopathic personalities. Now, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, because it's been going a few generations, there isn't a single leader anymore. There's more this collective governing body. But I think it kind of... it. Uh, carries forward those attributes of charisma, which I kind of refer to as, quote, love in my book, and authoritarianism, which I refer to as the terror part. So you have this dynamic of we're the loving ones, but we're also going to frighten the pants off of you. Um, and that's, as you will know, as a psychotherapist, a very dangerous and confusing dynamic to be in the middle of. So that's the leadership of a cult. The structure, and which Jehovah's Witnesses fits, the structure is isolating as the principal nature of the structure and steeply hierarchical. And Jehovah's Witnesses are incredibly isolating. Um, I think, again, people who've just seen them on the street, you can kind of see that. They're not, they want to give you a copy of the Watchtower, but you can't really engage with them in a normal kind of a way. Uh, well, so and they, their uh, religion is um, rigid about celebrations. Exactly. They, they don't. They they can't celebrate Christmas or Halloween or birthdays or <clears throat> or um, you know anything along those lines because it's um, considered to be um, extravagant or cult or even cultish. They they, they might even say you know to. Participating in Halloween is is cultish and against God, mm -hmm. that that sort of thing. So when you talk to someone who's grown up in it, what you understand about that restriction is it isolates them at school from their school friends. So whenever there's a birthday party at school, they have to kind of leave the room. Or if there's anything to do with Christmas, they have to leave the room. So it sort of stigmatizes the the child and separates them from their peers. So most Jehovah's Witness children, maybe when they're quite young, it's different, but as they get older, they're really discouraged from having any normal relationship with their peers, unless they are also Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. And I would say the same would be true for adults. They are out in the world, they work, but they wouldn't necessarily have close relationships with people outside their religion, and that would be frowned upon. So that's um, isolation. And I think there's many other things that would feed into that isolation, but all cults will be isolating. And uh, when I got out of my group a long time ago now, I think it's been about 27 years ago, a very helpful uh, lay counsellor said to me that there's a triple isolation in cults. It's the one we've just talked about, the isolation from the outside world. But you're also isolated within the cult because you can only really deal with other people in the cult within the cult culture and rules, right? So you can't say to someone else in the Jehovah's Witnesses, do you know this apocalypse and this Armageddon prediction? Haven't they already predicted that several times and it didn't happen? You know, you can't, have a, you can't share a doubt with someone else. That's going to get you in trouble. So you can't have a really open and critical relationship with others in the group. You have to be going along with the program. So that's a, 
isolation from others in the group. And the third isolation is from yourself, from your own internal dialogue. Because if you're not able to get any validation from anyone else, because we are, after all, social animals, and we tend to think socially as well, you know, it's very hard to stand up as an isolated individual without any social validation. So at a certain point, you can't even think the doubts. They get kind of repressed and shoved away. So this is the long way of giving you my second (laughs) part of the definition of um, what is a cult. That's the structure. The third is the belief system or the ideology, which basically kind of mirrors that structure. It's also very isolating. It's top down. You can't question it. It's total in that you don't need any other beliefs or ideologies or ways of thinking about the world. What we say covers everything. And I think in the Jehovah's Witnesses, an example of this is, uh, you know, then they're not allowed to vote. That's another restriction. So, you know, you would not be a member of your local, you know, Democratic Party or whatever, because that's another belief system. And you don't need that, right? Right. Um, So, you know, that's this kind of totalistic belief system that covers everything. Uh, Then the fourth point is what I call basically the process of brainwashing or coercive persuasion or coercive control. There's a bunch of different words for it, which we can go into because that's a little more complicated to explain. And then the fifth thing is the outcome of all these things, which is you have controllable and exploitable followers who you've kind of entrapped, which certainly the Jehovah's Witnesses have. You know, they just, there they are doing God's work on the street corners, you know, they, they don't have autonomy. They're not to get education. They often work very low-level jobs, um, and their job is to serve the organization. So when the members came to you, were they saying things along the lines of that they were being coerced or bullied or forced to stay in the organization? Well, I think the principal form, I don't think they use those words, um, but the form of the uh, coercion to stay in was that if they left, uh, particularly if they left under a cloud, so, for instance, um, uh, um, one of the people when she was 17 had sex with somebody not as we might think a highly unusual circumstance but because of that she was disfellowshipped and when you're disfellowshipped anyone inside the organization is not to have contact with you anymore and so the 17 year old girl her family just that was it so you know that's pretty extreme coercion in my mind that you know shunning right that's shunning and it's quite it's used in quite extreme ways in the Jehovah's Witnesses and in most cults. Did they eventually let her back in or what? Well, she could have gone back in if she was willing to submit to a kind of rehabilitation program, which can involve coming to meetings. You can't come to the whole meeting and you have to sit in the back and you don't participate. And then you have to get, you know, advice from the elders. And that can last three or four or more years where you're this kind of non-person in the group. 
until you're sufficiently beaten down and humiliated <laughs> that you agree to come back. So, you know, it's it's not a very pleasant thing. I, by the way, want to plug a, a new movie that's out that if people are interested, not it is about the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I think it is a brilliant movie that shows a lot about all kinds of cults, just but using that example. It's called Apostasy. Okay. And I think it will come to probably art house um, movie houses in the U.S. in the next year. It's just come out here in the UK. It's really a fantastic film. So um, it's called Apostasy, highly recommended. To kind of understand, you know, what it shows is a mother with two children, two young women children, and how the conflict of trying to be loyal to the group while loving her two girls who are, for different reasons, lost, becoming lost to her because of the policies of the group. And it's it's a very hard thing to describe, but the film does that beautifully of how a mother can basically reject, so to speak, her, her own children in favour of the group because the pressures are so intense and she's so indoctrinated. Interesting, Yet, yeah. I'm looking at it right here. It has a hundred... Uh, hundred percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's, yeah, it's a fantastic I, movie, really. Yeah. Hmm. Very subtle showing this kind of emotional blackmail and control and the conflict that she feels but that she can't resolve. Well, she does resolve it. But I won't, you know, I'll say no more. <laughs> okay. So um, you mentioned you were in a cult 27 years ago? Uh, I was. I got into a unhealthy group, that's uh, another word for it, um, when I was 26, <clears throat> which I thought was a kind of, you know, this was back shortly after the six year, the, well, no, that's not true. Oh, hang on. So long ago, I'm forgetting my dates. It was in the early 80s, which was a period not quite as scary as the one we're in now, but a little bit the same in that, you know, Reagan had just come in and there was kind of, they were breaking up the unions and there was a lot of um, a feeling of repression in the air anyway. And I had always been a left-wing progressive. My parents were as well. So I was kind of brought up with those values. And I got into this group that I thought was doing organizing for working women and unions and for social justice and yeah, for revolution in a kind of rather naive way, but, you know, there were many of us who had those uh, feelings at the time. And I was rather quickly set up in a marriage, a sort of, it wasn't exactly arranged because I did kind of agree, approve of the chap. But again, this is really common in cults, is that they trap you by relationships, and this kind of goes to that fourth point. I didn't really go in too much, but this is part of it. So quite quickly I was put into this relationship with this guy and then we were married, which was a bit not really the kind of thing I would have done at the time. I wasn't, I didn't really see myself as the marrying type, but, you know, everyone around me was like this was the thing to do and it was kind of, for the revolution. I know this sounds a little crazy. You'll have to read my first book to get 
make more sense of it because it's hard to explain quickly. But, you know, once I was in that relationship and I did care for this chap and then we were rather quickly told to have children, which was for our development, we were told, you know, then you're kind of, how do you leave all that? You're sort of now you have your whole family structure within this system. Um, So even though I started kind of kicking out at things I saw that were wrong, like we had a, um, a bakery that we ran and we were started paying local workers below minimum wage. And I had been involved in union organizing before I got into this group. And yeah, that went very much against my beliefs and I questioned it. Um, and actually I ended up leaving the group for a few months because I was kicking so much at what things I thought were crazy or I couldn't understand. But, you know, I was then not allowed to see my husband during the time I was gone. And I didn't understand this was a cult. I just thought, you know, I, had, I was just confused. I didn't know what it was. I just knew I didn't agree with some things. To cut a long story short, I went back because that, I think looking back largely because that was the only way I could be back in that relationship. Um, and also because I was very isolated. They had succeeded in isolating me. So when I left, I was in Minneapolis where I knew nobody except group members. I didn't understand what I had been in. And, you know, I'd cut off all my old friends, which, again, is what cults do when they recruit you. You know, they tell you don't hang out with with so-and-so because they're holding you back and, you know, the good people are in the group. Anyway, I went back. Um, and it took me a further nine years, nine long, boring, dreary, mostly, um, years before I then managed to get out but for some various reasons, but one of them being being fearful for my children. So when I got out, I then had kids who were five and two, and I didn't want them to have to live the kind of miserable existence that I had experienced. And also, and I think very importantly, another woman in the cult, we started very tentatively trusting each other to share our doubts. And once we really were able to do that, we both just said, let's get out of here. Because again, it's going back to that thing of it's very hard to stand up on your own to express yourself when everyone else in the system is is denying what you're saying. So your your listeners may be aware of the ash experiments. Maybe John Atek may have talked about them, the famous lines experiments. Yeah, basically it's just, it's interesting. People can Google it and look it up. It's uh, Solomon Ash, A-S-C-H. But basically it shows how people will deny something that's very obvious to their own vision, the length of a line, you know, compared to and other lines and which is the closest if a unanimous majority of other people are saying something that's completely wrong, it's very hard if you're the only one to say, "Uh uh-uh. But if you have one other person validating you or at least breaking that unanimity, they can even be saying a wrong answer, it gives you the freedom to say, hey, you know, and give the right answer. So this is why we see in totalitarianism you have to – 
um, repress any dissent. You cannot have any dissent at all because as soon as you have some dissent, it allows people to say this isn't right. Um, so that's where we see places like North Korea and hopefully not the U.S. <laughs> the way it's going. Um, but in these systems, you know, that's a really uh, dangerous sign and it's a warning sign if any dissent or any questions are disallowed. You want to have some healthy disagreement somewhere along the line in a healthy system. Would you have gotten out if you didn't have that comrade? I think I, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I think I, you know, I, my husband was not able to confide, to share doubts with me at the time. He did get out a year, a year later. So that, and I kind of had tried with him. And I knew he wasn't ready. Would I have found someone else? I don't know the answer to that. That's a, I think maybe I would have because of the children. Because, you know, the way I've analyzed this stuff in my second book, Terror, Love and Brainwashing, is through an attachment theory lens. And that's kind of how I look at the brainwashing, how that works. Um, so I can talk about that. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that. <laughs> so attachment theory, uh, which John Bowlby um, developed and then many, many others since then have taken it forward, I think is a marvelously powerful uh, way of looking at, at how human beings operate in relation to each other. And it's an evolutionary-based theory. And it, uh, it started with him looking at children and it was initially a theory of child development and parent-child relationships. And in short, uh, and this is very short again, in a healthy parent-child relationship, you have what's called secure attachment or at least more or less secure attachment, which is when the child is stressed or frightened or upset, they will engage in attachment behaviors. They'll cry or they'll signal or they'll approach the parent and the parent will comfort them. And then when they're comforted enough, the child will go back out into the world and play. And this was kind of evolutionarily um, useful because um, it protect, it, this kind of attachment served the function of protecting the child from predators and so forth and other risks. And this is a kind of homeostatic balance that takes place between the parent and the child. So when the child is stressed, they have, you know, their cortisols, they have a cortisol uh, stress reaction. And when they're being comforted by the parent, their in internal or endogenous opioids are raised by the comfort feelings and those balance out and bring down the cortisols and bring them into a state of calm. But you don't want too much calm. You want eventually to go get a little excitement again and have some fun and get your cortisols up. So that's the kind of homeostasis that, that goes back and forth with a more or less secure parenting, where the parent is open, flexible, and responsive. So this also happens in adult relationships, in close, very like with a couple, a close couple, or very, very, very close friends. You get the same kind of comfort and um, uh, independence, shall we say. So that's all well and good. But there's a form of this attachment that's 
not good and has poor outcomes for people. And it's called disorganized attachment, which we can also think of as a trauma bond. Sometimes that word helps people understand it better. And that's when the stress that's causing the cortisols to go up is not coming from some external place or from the child's internal you know, illness or tiredness, but it's actually coming from the parent or the, the caregiver, the person who's supposed to help you calm down. So you have this uh, caregiver figure who's both your source of comfort, supposedly, but also the source of fear. So that goes back to that charisma and authoritarianism I talked about at the beginning. You have both those things happening. So you have this figure that's your supposed perceived source of comfort, which we call the perceived safe haven, but then they frighten you in some way. We are evolutionarily set up to approach our perceived safe haven when we feel that stress. So you're going to move towards the fear, the frightening figure, in order to try to get comfort from that figure. So you can see that's a kind of unresolvable paradox. So if you think of a frightening parent or a frightening partner, you know, say domestic violence relationships very often look like this. So when you're trying to approach, get comfort from the source of fear, that doesn't work well. It's maladaptive. And what what can happen and probably mostly happens and will certainly happen if you're isolated from any other alternate sources of comfort is you kind of do the deer in the headlights freeze response because it's not actually working. Your cortisols are staying really high, but you're still trying to get comfort. So you're staying kind of moving towards the fear and it kind of creates a positive feedback loop where you keep going towards the frightening stimulus instead of running away from it or fighting it, which would be a a better response. And I want to emphasize here, if you had a alternate place to go, that wouldn't work. You'd just say, oh, this person's frightening. I'm going somewhere else. And again, that's why cults have to isolate you so that you have no other place to go and you just get stuck in that trauma bond. Is this making some sense so far? Yeah, crystal clear. <laughs> okay. So there are what I see in my work is I think there are two effects of that freeze deer in the headlights response. And there's a, a lot of great literature on this about trauma that I just pulled from really in my book. One is this, um, this the emotional side where you stay clinging, trying but failing to get your cortisols down. So that's where you get the kind of, why can't the person leave? Well, they think everything else, they can't, there's no where else to go. They've been conditioned that everything else is bad and scary and this is the only safe place. And they need to cling because they have this chronic anxiety and stress going on that they're trying to resolve. So that's the emotional effect is the clinging. And the cognitive effect is this is not working well. This does not compute. This freezing is happening in the brain as dissociation. So dissociation, in my view, most, is most simply explained as saying you, your thinking, your higher order thinking in the front of your brain and your feelings, your emotions in the kind of mid-regions of your brain 
about that frightening relationship, those the higher order thinking and the feelings aren't able to speak, talk to each other. They're not integrated. They're disintegrated or dissociated. So you're not able to think about your feelings about that frightening relationship. And we kind of know this is what happens in trauma. People aren't able to think clearly about what's going on. This is why we talk about triggers and flashbacks and so on, because this is un, unmetabolized feelings that just are, we have speechless terror. We have all these kind of phrases, fright without solution. We can't think carefully to plan our way out in a trauma response. We're just, ah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, I would say, in addition to that, there are some contexts in which the high control relationship is such that they actually don't have a choice, really, a good choice anyway. Um, you know, if there's a threat of death or I'm going to kill your kids or exactly. something right. like that, then then even if their higher order thinking was able to integrate with their feelings, the logical answer for some people is to stay. Absolutely. And thank you for saying that because, you know, for instance, in some of the famous cults like, you know, Jonestown, you know, people were stuck in the middle of the jungle surrounded by armed guards. They, they'd had no choice. Um, in my case, one can argue I did have a choice However, that choice involved knowing there was going to be, I was going to have to, you know, break up the family very likely, not knowing what that was going to look like, being very physically afraid. Um, and just cults, even if there isn't that fear, but which many do have, and I do appreciate you saying that, of the very real uh, physical threats, even if they don't have that, they they inculcate that fear in you. And so, so fear is really the core of how cults work. That is the absolute driving piece. And if you think about that fright without solution relationship, you can see that. So, you know, whether that's a physical fear, whether it's a fear of Armageddon, you know, if you leave, the devil's going to get you. Uh, if it's a fear they're going to take my children away or they're going to, my marriage will be gone or my family will never talk to me again. You know, there's all kinds, they, they're very creative and there's a wide range of cults that use different kinds of fear. But I know for myself that leaving that group was by far and away the most frightening thing I've ever done. I mean, I was, it was t absolutely terrifying. What, what were you afraid of specifically? I talk about, in, a, in another piece I wrote, three kinds of fear. There's just the, there's fear of retribution. You know, they're going to come after me and kill me, you know, and I would lie awake at night and think this guy who, after I left, I discovered, in fact, he was violent. I, I didn't know him at all in the group, by the way. He was a secret figure. I didn't know his name or anything. But once I got out or on my way out, I found out he had actually killed somebody and I found out various other things. So I had a physical fear of retribution that he was going to come by my house and shoot the house up. Happy to say he didn't. There's a kind of practical fear, just kind of how are you going to cope? You know, you've kind of, even though I was in the world, you know, in having a regular job, you're, you're kind of so psychologically and emotionally isolated 
you just don't know how you're going to manage. You know, how am I going to, you know, go deal with these practical things of um, getting my kids out and rebuilding life and making friends again and figure out who I am, you know, all these big questions. But there's a third fear which I talk about as you feel like you're walking off the edge of the known world into a void and you're just dropping off into space. And when I talk to other people who've been in cults, they always recognize that description. And that's, I call that a kind of existential fear. And I think it's this nameless dread that is part of this trauma bond that I, I'm sh- I think it's just a trauma kind of a feeling and uh, it's, but you can't necessarily attach it to something. It's just a kind of free floating terror. It's really crazy. So to get out of a cult, you have to somehow move through that. And that's where, you know, like having someone else coming out with you or having a safe place to land is hugely helpful. Um, it doesn't take away that terror, but it gives you a feeling that at least you're not totally alone in it. Yeah, the the way I like to uh, think about it, and, and I've been here in my personal life and professional life before, and you described it pretty well, uh, it's this unnamed fear of God knows what, you know, that that's kind of the way I think of it. It's like you're interacting with someone or a group of people and you realize that they're quite intense and they're capable of doing things that you you wouldn't think people would be capable of doing or at least it's unusual at the very least mm. and it just raises all these questions as to what else they're capable of you know like someone in a domestic violence relationship in a personal violence uh, relationship the spouse picks up a chair and throws it at the wall or uh, talks about wanting to slash the tires of his boss or, mm-hmm. or uh, watches a lot of TV shows about guns all the time or something. So there's no direct threat to the spouse, mm-hmm. but there's this notion of, or this observation of this person is intense and they're capable of doing things that, uh, that, I wouldn't be capable of doing and what else are they capable of? If, if they really were upset at me, what else could they do? And the, you know, the risk is low, but the, but the cost is so high if it comes to pass, you know, if it, you know, cause there is a thought of this person could, I mean, I could conceivably see this person killing me, even though they've never threatened me or they've never killed anyone or they've never even, they've never even been violent with me that their behavior is just so strange and so intense and so emotional that, you know, your brain, it doesn't take a genius to say, you know, there's, it's possible that they could get so angry that they could kill me. It's possible. I would give it like a 3% chance, but what if, you know, or I give it a 3% chance they could kill my kids. So I'd rather stay in the relationship because I, you know, I I don't want to risk even if it's a small chance of that happening. Uh, Absolutely. And, And actually one thing we know about domestic violence relationships, and I suspect, well, we'll just keep to that domestic violence relationship is that the risk for if for a woman 
is highest when she leaves. That's when femicides, the murder of women, occurs most frequently is when she tries to leave the relationship. So, you know, because these types of personalities, they're happy to throw you out, if, but they have to be in control of the relationship. And if you try to take control by leaving, they really don't like that. That makes them very angry. Um, so, and, and, you know, what, just going back to what you're saying, just that feeling of threat, which in cults is really dominant. So going back to the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, the threats are very real. Um, I mean, there's the crazy threats of Armageddon is going to come when everyone's going to be killed. And young children are taught this material with very graphic images of people burning up with the flames. And, you know, a couple of the people that I've seen in my practice, you know, have been really traumatized as young children with these terror, terrifying images of the end of the world and videos and things of this. Um, So you have those kind of threats, but you also have the very real uh, deaths and abuse that happens, the deaths by the blood policy, you know, the no blood transfusions, which, you know, I think that gets tweaked every now and again when the publicity gets too bad and now you're allowed to have certain fractions of blood, but people are still dying um, because of the blood policy and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And, of course, you have the huge scandal that's coming out now about child sexual abuse and other forms of abuse where because, again, most cults do their policing internally, if someone, the Jehovah's Witnesses of a kid, says, you know, so-and-so elder abused me, the parent can't go to the police. They have to go through the Jehovah's Witnesses' own judicial process internally and part of that judicial process is that you can't say that someone's guilty so to speak unless there are two witnesses it's called the two witness rule so you want to think about having two witnesses to child sexual abuse you know that's a a long shot right right so now there's a bunch of court cases some of which are being won i'm happy to say because the other thing is that these cases have been noted by the Jehovah's Witnesses in some great logbook in central headquarters somewhere, but kept from the police. So they don't ever report this to the police, and which is illegal. At least, certainly in the UK it's illegal. If you know that there's been you know, a child in danger, you are obliged, if you're in any professional capacity, you're obliged to report that. So this is going on right now as we speak with all these court cases going on around this. So, um, again, this, to, you know, I think if we go back to the principle of fear and isolation, because you need those two characteristics, other, it, in order to get that fright without solution and that dissociation and that clinging response. There are other things that help it, like keeping people sleep-deprived, and too busy to think or do anything else and, you know, a whole lot of other things that I suspect John Atak probably talked about in his interview. But I think the key thing of isolating people leads to a whole lot of behaviours that we see in cults. So we see control of relationships, right? We see people being put in either arranged or approved marriages 
pretty much you have to be in a relationship within the cult. There are some exceptions. Yeah, there are sometimes when someone's in a cult, they can have a relationship externally, but that's, I'd say, rare and only if they're not causing any trouble. Um, So there's control of your sexuality. So cults will also control, you know, who you're having sex with, how you're having sex, if you're having sex. You know, a lot of cults, um, Heaven's Gate, for instance, um, mandated celibacy, even to the extent of some of the men being castrated, or other cults mandated polygamy, like the children of God, so you have to sleep with everyone. But whatever the way they're ordering people around, the result is that you can't have a normal, trusting, close sexual relationship with someone. It's monkeyed around with in some way. Interesting. I never thought about polygamy as a tool for keeping people isolated from secure enough or uh, close enough relationships so that they could actually talk about their experience and maybe get out of the cult. That's interesting. Yeah, I I think it's used that way in cults or celibacy or any other way of controlling people's uh, attachments. And it, is, it, is, it is interesting how sexuality is, is such a common theme in cults, you know, mm-hmm. it, and how the leaders are um, often, I don't know, using sex in some way for self-gratification or I'm guessing also for control. Yeah, I think for both, yeah. Unless they, for some reason, don't want to have sex like the leader of Heaven's Gate, in which case no one else can have it either <laughs> yeah. or there's um sri chinmoy who said no one else can have sex but he can with the young women you know right. that's another favorite um, so in the end here what advice do you have to anyone out there who is currently in a cult or a high control relationship what what advice do you have for them well first of all sadly i'd be surprised if they're able to listen to this bro- this program because they're that's not going to be they're not going to have time or space or be allowed to do that. Well, um, so just to chime in on that for a second, I, I, it, it, I would think so too, but I've recently realized that there are people who do have access. Yeah. I think it's because they have a phone and when yeah. they're listening to podcasts, it's on headphones and it could, it could be seen like they're listening to music or something. No, so, actually, yeah, sorry to interrupt. You're right because there's another group that have come to me and educated me about their experience. And that's some young people who've left the ultra Orthodox Jewish community. And they've, they are calling their experience cultic. And in many ways it's the same as the Jehovah's witnesses. And when I asked them how they were able to leave, you're exactly right. They got a secret phone because a phone is small and they started listening to the radio, you know, secretly. Um, and that is how they've started to get information. So uh, you're, you're absolutely right. That is a way out for people. So my advice would be try to make contact with somebody on the outside, whether it's somebody you know from, you know, work or some other part of your life who you think is, can understand and help you. Um, try to make contact with, you know, one of the cult awareness organizations there you know most countries now have some kind of 
organization or at least individuals. So if you just Google cult help uh, in your area, you will probably find somebody and start to make contact with them. Um, there are, you know, life is good. You know, when I run, run across Jehovah's Witnesses, I always just go by and try to say to them, you know, life is good outside. It's not necessarily always easy, but there's a lot going on and a lot of it is, is of value. Um, so I think, you know, it's really important. You just have to make contact with someone who kind of slightly gets this stuff so that you're not doing it entirely on your own because it's, it's not an easy process and you need other people um, to support you. And there, and there are people out there who are willing to do that in various ways. Um, and then once you are starting to get out, I would say start educating yourself about what a cult is because when people get out of these situations, they don't know anything about cults. They just know they're trying to escape some bad situation that's making them terribly unhappy or scared. But once you start understanding what a cult is and reading some of the material out there and you start to understand that it's a very predictable and specific kind of a, uh, a system, it's really helpful. It really helps to make sense and to clarify some of that co- deliberately induced confusion that the group has, has induced. Um, there's one book I would recommend very highly um, for people, even if you've been out for a while, but you haven't quite figured out what the whole thing was about. It's called Take Back Your Life, Recovering from Cults and Abusive Relationships by Lalich and Tobias. And it's, uh, it's always the first thing I recommend for people starting to try to work out their experience. Cool. Well, thanks, Alexander. What else would you like to, what, can you plug your books again? I'm looking at two of them here on, on Google. It's Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, which was the book that you had about um, attachment and why uh, people um, get involved in cults and the mechanisms and how, I guess, cults use the attachment mechanism, either you know on purpose or not on purpose. Uh, published 2016, so a recent book, and then your memoir from 2002, Inside Out, a memoir yeah. of uh, entering and breaking out of a Minneapolis political cult. I know, it sounds unlikely, doesn't it? That one reads kind of like a thriller, so if you want a kind of easy, <laughs> exciting read, that's the one. And the other one is more for understand, terror, love, and brainwashing is more. It's also readable. I worked very hard to not make it. Um, you know, just an academic text, but it's it's readable, but it, it's much more kind of has a scientific bent. So, and so I, I, what yeah. was the political bent of the Minneapolis political cult? Marxist Leninist, I guess. And why did it? Why did they have to become a cult? I mean, there's certainly Marxist Leninists around. Why? Why did they? I mean, there are they're... a lot of cult. I mean, basically, a, a person. You know, anything can be a cult. Right. You know, absolutely anything. Um, 
a, a book club could become a cult. So know? was the, the leader just like, I want to, or had some kind of motivation to create a cult and this was just the... Yeah, he psychologically was interested in dominating other people and this was the milieu in which he was. Yeah. Is he still around? Uh, I believe he's still alive, but he was always very, very secretive, so it's hard to find out anything about him. Did the cult last long no, after No, the did? cult's pretty much gone. Um, there are, I think, a tiny maybe four or five people who still sort of hang on to some fake thing. Again, it's a bit hard to find out, um, but basically it's it's finished. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So How many people were in, in the cult when you were in it? I well again I don't exactly know because it was sort of had a cell structure so you never really knew everything it was very secretive but um I suspect no more than 40 people at its biggest it was probably a couple hundred 300 and I this, kind of got in quite This was late. in the 80s? Yeah mm-hmm. but it started the group started in the 70s. Was it one of the groups that started in the United States that was wanting to fight the government? Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And did they ever talk about terrorist activities the way no, that other groups did in the South? No. I mean, what was kind of weird about them in a way is, but when I joined, and I had been involved in politics for the previous 10 years, you know, of, of various kinds. And when I, <laughs> they didn't do anything political. It was really weird. You know, they just kept us very busy doing a lot of grunt work, but it actually, yeah, they weren't out at demonstrations like, you know, you see these various cultic groups now. Yeah, there's still plenty of left-wing political cults around. Of course, there's zillions of right-wing political cults, let's not forget, including Donald Trump's one. Um, that's another story. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so that that's very common. Um but we really didn't engage in any, as far as I was aware, any actual political activity, which is why I kept grumbling and being a rebellious member because I couldn't understand. But supposedly what we were doing was developing ourselves to be these kind of pure, right-on people. Is the uh, Make America Great Again people a cult? I think there's a lot of cultic influence going on. That's why I'm so particularly terrified about what's happening in the States. There's two books for people who are interested that I think go a long way to explaining what's going on. They're old, actually. They're not about Trump. They're called The Family is one and C Street is the other, and they're by a guy called Jeff Charlotte, S-H-A-R-L-E-T. And it talks about a Washington-based cult that a lot of, um, they actually the people behind the National Prayer Breakfast. And they are connected into a network of kind of right-wing fundamentalist, evangelical, um, dominionist theology-based churches throughout particularly the South, not just the South, but particularly the South. Um, And I think a lot of them are the um, uh, uh, base support for Trump. And they're very scary. A lot of those um, mega churches and not, I mean, I don't want to say all, 
because there may be some that are okay, but there are a lot that are not okay and that completely operate as cults. Well, and, so there's, there's people that we disagree with or people that we think are wrongheaded, but to say it's a cult means that the members are being controlled and don't have a way out easily. Is, is that yeah. what you're saying? And it also means the leadership want, is deliberately trying to get that complete control and don't want to have any dissent. So if you think of Trump, who I think has the charisma and the authoritarianism that I look for in a cult leader, you know, he's a charismatic bully, you know. His, if you look just at the way he's dealing with the press, you know, he's not going to allow questions from CNN, right? This is completely new territory of disallowing dissent. And we've all read the stories about what's primary for Trump is loyalty, right? And as soon as someone's disagreeing with him at his lieutenant level, they're out on their ear. And that unstable, unstable secondary leadership is very characteristic of totalitarianism. I mean, now we're going from cults to totalitarianism, but totalitarianism is just a cult writ large at the state level. So we see um, that unstable leadership. We see the disallowing any dissent. Um, uh, slightly blanking out on other things, but you know that. Yeah, I'm sure. A, I'm sure the closer you get to Trump and his organization, whether he was a politician or when he was uh, just a business person, I'm guessing, given the, you know, from what I understand, what's happening uh, around him and, and his behavior is that it would be very difficult to dissent um, from what he would like because either he will directly fire you or punish you somehow, or the followers will do something mm-hmm. to you. And also, and I think this has been hard for particularly European leaders to understand who have to negotiate with him, his belief system is best understood not as a belief system, like what does he believe? No one can really tell you what Trump believes. But what we kind of know is it does start to look that like that totalist belief system, like you have to believe everything he says, it all comes from the top. And it's not a kind of normal ideological set of positions, right? He'll kind of go with what's useful to him at a given time. And it makes it very difficult to negotiate because what is it that he wants? You know, a totalist leader, as I call them, just wants control. whereas a kind of other kind of leader may want clear things. You know, they may want um, a certain amount of territory or they may want this kind of a deal. Um, But a totalist leader just wants to keep getting more and more control. So you can't deal with them like a normal politician. They're operating in a different way. I I don't think I'm explaining that very well but um, read Hannah Arendt for a very good explanation. Yeah, and, and or to look good, right? That's another concern of his, I think. And, and I'm guessing to all politicians, really, but maybe particular to him. But it's kind of like what is going to satisfy him in a negotiation? Only him getting everything in a way. I mean, okay, there's other things going on, like we don't know what the Russian can have or haven't got on him. You know, there's. I mean, we could go a long way with this, which maybe this isn't the 
the right moment. But but it's there's a lot of warning signs from my point of view of potential totalitarianism, and certainly I'm not the only one who has has this fear. Yeah, it's scary. Well, thanks, Alexandra Stain, for coming on the podcast and talking about cults and sharing us with your wisdom and your experience. You're most welcome, and thanks for having this interesting show. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.